Hello, and welcome to Humanities Matter, brought to you by Brill. I'm Lee Chung Greco, and this week we'll be looking at key issues in the field of humanities. Hi, and welcome to the Humanities Matter podcast. I'm speaking with Dr. Martin Edwards. He's a family practitioner and historian of medicine, and he's also the author of Control and the Therapeutic Trial. Uh, Dr. Edwards, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. So first of all, uh, can you tell us why you focused on the meaning or the gravity behind the word controlled in therapeutic trials? Was it a, what does it mean in a trial or science experiment when something is controlled? Well, in the period I'm looking at in my book, Between the Wars, essentially, uh, controlled means whatever you want it to mean. And it is one mother of a word. Um, and when I first started looking into trial methodology uh, in this period, I was actually looking for something a bit different. And um, I kept coming across the description of trials as controlled. And at first, you know, one tends to glance over this because controlled trials are its a very familiar phrase nowadays. And it's a phrase that uh, has a, a certain specific meaning. Um, but it became, I kept coming across this and became apparent that um, the, the word control or control was not being applied to these trials um, in the sense uh, that it's, it will be used nowadays, by, which is uh, technically to mean a comparison group. Um, and in fact, it was being used in a very uh, poorly defined, a very nebulous way. And at, at first, this frustrated me because I, I thought, you know, what are these guys talking about? What do they mean by control? Why don't they say what they mean by control? But then I realized that actually that was the story um, and that this word with its huge connotation, I mean, control is a powerful word. It has connotations of authority uh, and power uh, and uh, subjugation, um, uh, being in control, being in command. Um, and this word, uh, I argue, was appropriated by one group the British Medical Research Council, um, as a sort of rhetorical device to attach to their trials. MRC trials, uh, they maintained, were controlled. They didn't define what it meant, and the power of it uh, was um, enhanced by the fact they didn't define what it meant. Uh, it could mean anything you like. It could mean a well-regulated trial. It could mean a trial um, conducted uh, under the authority of someone who, who was respected or, or knew what they were doing. Uh, it could mean a well-designed trial. It could mean uh, a trial uh, conducted under uh, rigid controlled conditions, such as in a hospital. It could mean uh, later on in this period, look at it could mean a, a, a trial with a control group, a comparison group. Um, but generally, they didn't define what it meant. They used the rhetorical power of this very powerful word um, to try and appropriate for themselves the right to decide therapeutic efficacy. The background to this is that there was a, a debate going on uh, between various vested interests as to how you decided whether a treatment worked or not. Um, and the MRC was one group in this. They uh, prioritized a certain methodology, which was uh, laboratory-orientated medical science. But there were lots of other ways of deciding whether a treatment worked or not. 
for example, um, traditionally, an experienced clinician uh, would try the therapy out on some of his patients uh, and use his clinical acumen and his wisdom to decide whether it was working or not. Um, hospitals started getting in on the act and they um, started having sort of quasi-laboratory trials in hospitals where uh, they tried to control, another use of the word, all the conditions, the diet, the, uh, the, the, the environment of the patients, their, their um, exercise uh, regimes, their, their bed routines and so on, um, in order to introduce only one variable, which was the treatment uh, uh, in question. Um, there were people who started to say, well, you know, we can overcome idiosyncrasies um, of individual reaction to uh, therapies, which was a confounding factor in, in any assessment of therapeutic efficacy by throwing large numbers at it. Give the treatment to large numbers of people um, and maybe compare them with people who haven't had the treatment and the, the, the idiosyncrasies will come out in the wash. There were people who said, if it doesn't work in the laboratory, it doesn't work. The laboratory is the scientific modern way to assess therapeutic efficacy. So you had that battle going on, and it was quite an acrimonious battle sometimes. Uh, and the MRC um, wanted to become the authority, certainly in, in Britain, uh, that had the right to say whether a treatment worked or not, and this is the way you decide whether it works or not. And it, as one weapon in that battle, I argue that they appropriated this this powerful word control attached it to their trials um, and said well, our trials are controlled any of the trials are, aren't controlled so they can't be any good um, and, and that's that's basically the rabbit hole that first looking at the way that the word control is being used um, took me down uh, in writing this book. For non-British listeners, um, can you just briefly explain what the MRC is, the Medical Research Council, just sort of how they fit into this? Uh, medical research started off as a medical research committee and started it was founded in 1913 as part of the National Health Insurance Act, which was uh, sort of the precursor of the NHS. It introduced state um, provided medical care for working men in this country who earned below a certain amount. Um, that's what everyone remembers the act for, but it also created the, the MRC. Um, it was a government-funded um, committee um, with the remit of um, providing and, and enhancing and ensuring proper scientific uh, studies of, of medicine uh, in this country. Uh, and that included uh, studies of the efficacy of new treatments. There were, this is an exciting time. Between the wars is a very exciting time for doctors because lots of new treatments were coming on stream um, and uh, I argue in the book that we, we tend to remember now the ones that were successful, the, the antibiotics and the vitamins and insulin and so on. But there were an awful lot of other treatments uh, which uh, were sort of under the rubric of scientific treatments um, generally, uh, which generate a lot of excitement, a lot of enthusiasm, um, which we tend to forget because the passage of time has led us to believe that, well, actually, they probably weren't as good as we thought they were. Um, but at the time, uh, people didn't know this. People didn't know that insulin was going to be a wonder drug and, and raw pancreas therapy for diabetes wasn't. Um, and so um, the, the whole 
there, there were an awful lot of new drugs and new, new not just drugs, but treatments, therapies, you know, light therapy, radium therapy. There are a lot of new therapies to test. Um, and the, the, the person or the, the, the organization that gained the moral right to adjudicate on um, therapeutics, to adjudicate on how you decide whether treatments work and whether they work or not, would um, control a large swathe of this new and exciting emerging medicine. And did the MRC have that control? I guess, sorry to use the word control there. Did they have that authority uh, just because they were government funded? Uh, not entirely. And that's uh, why there was such a, a, a battle. I mean, a, a, again, in the, the book I mentioned, for example, a, a very acrimonious spat between um, uh, Walter Fletcher, the, the chairman of the MRC uh, in the 1920s, uh, and the uh, Royal College of Physicians. Um, who were one of the many groups um, saying that, hey, look, we should be the ones that decide whether treatments work or not. Um, and the physicians were um, much more uh, from the school of sort of hands-on medicine that uh, we are uh, experienced and, and wise and educated physicians. Uh, we've seen thousands of patients. We know, we can tell, we use our clinical acumen, we can tell if a treatment's working or not. Um, and if, if we if we tried out, we can give you a, an answer to that question. Fletcher was was very dismissive of this. Uh, he um, he was very dismissive of clinical ability and clinical acumen uh, in in answering questions of therapeutic efficacy. Um, and he said it, it was much more relevant to use laboratory based science. And there was a very acrimonious spat and <laughs> quite quite sort of. Uh, rude exchanges between, uh, the, the, for example, the MRC and the Royal College of Physicians uh, about this. Uh, there are lots of other uh, groups of vested interest as well. So simply being a government-funded organisation did not give the MRC um, a sort of built-in um, authority. Uh, and that's why they used tricks, including exploiting the rhetoric of control, appropriating that word, to try and gain it for themselves. They are, the MRC, I should add, are, are, are currently um, one of the two major funders of uh, medical research uh, in this country uh, with, with the Wellcome Trust. And something that's so interesting, uh, you mentioned all of those different uh, trials that, that did work and didn't work, uh, the, that we made uh, these great strides in medicine right between the wars. Um, and you talked about the fact that the impetus behind finding a cure for the flu was that it was sort of part of the war effort that people were worried that actually um, that pandemic would hurt hurt the war effort, basically. Um, so I'm wondering if you found uh, that there was, um, uh, I guess, a, a a greater thrust behind that research than maybe we're, we're seeing today or, or that we see during peacetime uh, because it, it was linked with um, sort of, you know, a, a grander strategy. It just wasn't a health issue. It was actually um, a security issue. 
Um, the war was certainly an impetus um, for uh, finding flu vaccine and effective flu. But it, it wasn't treatment for flu so much as uh, a preventive vaccine that um, they were looking for, which I, I describe in the book. Uh, the war was certainly an impetus for that. Um, the 1918 pandemic um, was still sort of in the memories of uh, people at this time. And uh, just reading the the MRC papers, it's apparent that there were sort of obviously military people coming and uh, talking to the committee there. Um, it was apparent that uh, there was this terror, really, of a repeat of an epidemic on the scale of a pandemic on the scale of the 1918 pandemic, uh, and its potentially devastating effect on the fighting ability of, of fighting men. Um, so that that was certainly an impetus. Um, um, I, I, I don't know um, to what it's, it, it's it, it changed the, the some of the research methodology. I think the the amount of secrecy um, that was assumed um, then is quite anything any slight setback in any trial or in any uh, trial development was uh, was kept secret for the public. Um, uh, but I suppose that's to be expected in wartime. Was that kept secret from the public because they were worried that it would hurt morale? Yeah, it was to uh, protect morale, yeah. Um, so, I mean, for example, there's a shipload of flu vaccine that was being uh, delivered from America. The, the, the Americans had uh, effective vaccine uh, sort of some years before we did. Uh, and uh, there's a, a, one large consignment of flu vaccine destined for our troops was sunk uh, by uh, German U-boat action. Uh, and uh, that was, for example, kept secret at the time. That's pretty frightening, actually. <laughs> there was a, when they did get um, vaccine from the States, um, there was a what, what we in Britain um, genteelly call a cock-up, um, that the vaccine uh, had been supplied as live vaccine. It was supposed to be uh, inert, uh, dead vaccine, but uh, the, the, the consignment came, to, came over and then the Americans said to the British, oops, sorry, this, this is actually live vaccine. It, it didn't get killed properly. Um, and there was a, a great debate about whether this could be used or not, and the British decided not to use it. But again, they kept secret uh, that, that this had happened, uh, and it wasn't uh, made public at all. Kind of makes you wonder what is going on uh, today with our, our current pandemic, um, which kind of leads me to my next question. Um, you write that individuals use subjective measures to judge a therapy's effectiveness. Um, you know, we're seeing this today with the coronavirus, um, you know, different experts or, or maybe people masquerading as experts who are recommending uh, certain, um, certain types of drugs that may or may not work. Um, but you also talk about this debate in 1925 when uh, general practitioners recommended eating raw pancreas as a treatment for diabetes. And basically, they came in conflict with these biochemist physicians who claimed that the experiment uh, wasn't accurately controlled. Um, so do we know who was right at the end of that? Um, was the use of controlled just a type of slander here? Um if you ask me as a 21st century clinician who was right um, using 21st century notions of evidence, um, I would say that the uh, notion that eating raw pancreas could uh, cure diabetes or, or control diabetes was roundly trounced. 
uh, and was uh, was clearly inaccurate. If you ask me that question as a historian, it's a rather more nuanced response, and it depends what you mean by work. When you say, does a treatment work? It depends what you mean by, does it work? And um, sort of throughout my book, really, one theme running through that, which I think you... I hope uh, becomes persuasive as you read the book is that determining whether a treatment works or not is a, uh, a social construct. Um, there, there is no, there are gold standards, but they are socially constructed gold standards. So nowadays the randomized controlled trial and uh, in the hierarchy of evidence above that meta-analyses and systematic reviews uh, are gold standards for treatment efficacy. It doesn't have to be that way, and it wasn't that way uh, even just a, a few decades ago. Um, and when you look at how even doctors who are avowed evidence-based medicine uh, practitioners um, actually make clinical decisions in real life, there are a lot of other factors, including previous experience and uh, sort of belief and uh, understanding and relationship with the patient in front of them that colour their judgment um, when choosing a therapy. Um, and I think there's, there's a similar process going on with the raw pancreas debate uh, and with some of the more bizarre um, uh, or left field um, uh, understandings of coronavirus and its treatment now. Um, in, in the raw pancreas debate, uh, the people advocating taking raw pancreas were well, on the whole GPs, general practitioners, um, and they were using a different notion of evidence. They uh, gave it to their patients, saw their, the effect on their patients, um, and said, in my clinical opinion and clinical experience, this treatment is effective. And they expected that to be taken seriously. Uh, the MRC had none of it. They, they, were, they would have none of that. Uh, and they um, would not believe the general practitioner's claims. Uh, and and they, they tested them in the laboratory. And because they didn't stand up to laboratory analysis, they didn't uh, believe the GPs uh, clinical claims, and then the, the MRC used the rhetoric of control to uh, attach their own studies to try and to win this debate, which I think they, ultimately they did. Um, I think nowadays notions of understanding effectiveness of remedies are a lot more nuanced and complex than we think they are, even if we think we are evidence-based practitioners who know about the hierarchy of evidence, who know how to appraise a randomized controlled trial. Um, notions of evidence are still, as I've tried to establish in the book, more nuanced than that. Um, and so um, personal expert testimony or, or, or testimony of someone who is trusted uh, is still important. Um, I, I think it's not too extreme to say in this day and age that might extend to um, something coming on the internet. Um, and uh, conspiracy theorists may prefer to believe um, something which they perceive as coming from a, a sympathetic group of people, uh, which says, for example, uh, 5G phone masks are the cause of coronavirus symptoms, which is, um, I don't know if you've had that so much in the States, but it's certainly a, an ongoing problem here, and people have been setting fire to 5G phone masks in an attempt to destroy them. Um, and I think it comes down to who, who you, 
which sources of information you find credible. Um, and there's a lot of, uh, of intuition and um, old-fashioned faith and, and, and gut feeling still um, going through that. Yeah, that's really interesting that you mentioned that because the BBC had talked about that this morning that, you know, some people might believe that vaccines don't work because they have heard that not through a news source or through um, a medical source like, let's say, the CDC or something here in the United States, um, but they hear it through people that they know on Facebook groups. So let's say you have a pet group on Facebook um, and you trust the people in that group because they give you good advice about dogs. Uh, you're also going to trust them about other things. So I, I guess that gets to what you're talking about, uh, this social construct concept. But uh, I guess I'm still a little bit confused on how uh, how these... Uh, therapies can work depending on sort of what social group you're in because at the end of the day some therapies work and some therapies don't correct um not if you're asking me as a historian no <laughs> because one um reason i first started being interested in the evaluation of therapeutic efficacy and you know, testing whether treatments work or not um, is because I, I, I'm a clinician primarily and I then started um, sort of academic training and academic work in the history of medicine. And one thing that struck me was that um, card-carrying historians of medicine who would rather uh, rip off their right arms uh, than be described as um, internalist historians or Whiggish historians had a bit of a blind spot when it comes to judging therapeutic efficacy. And I think this is one example of where clinical insight can help generate research questions in the history of medicine. Um, there's, uh, th th there have been historians of medicine who've been very suspicious, and I've come across some of them, suspicious of clinicians uh, working in history of medicine because they think we are inevitably hidebound by our uh, preconceptions and our clinical and our modern clinical understanding and so on. Um, and it's true, you have to leave that behind as much as you can. Um, but also, I think there are examples where clinical experience can generate uh, questions, and this is one, because I think pretty well any practitioner will tell you it is fiendishly difficult often on a one-to-one -one basis to know whether a treatment is working for the patient in front of you, whether those antibiotics have made any difference to shortening the duration of that infection in that individual, whether these antihypertensives are having a significant effect on this patient's blood pressure. Um, you, you, you can be sure that they're effective on a population in a randomized controlled trial, but the, the, the degree of the effect on the patient in front of you is often difficult to judge. Um, and historians often seem to have this notion that it's pretty obvious if treatments work or not. And so there's a sort of what I would describe as a therapeutic internalism that um, on the whole, over time, uh, empirically, treatments that work will be retained and treatments that don't work will be discarded. And so treatments will improve over time because on the whole, you retain the good ones and you, you get rid of the, the lousy ones. Um, I don't think that's true. 
Um, because, as I say, this, this difficulty of, of deciding whether uh, the patient in front of you is responding to your particular treatment. Um, and so you need a systematized means to dis decide whether treatments are working or not. Now, that can be uh, the opinion of wise um, and experienced clinicians trying the treatment out. It can be a randomized controlled trial. But or it, it can be other methods. They all have their problems. And I do discuss this a bit in the, in the, 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 the last chapter of my book, because some of the, the problems, some of the, the subjectivity that is inherent, even in randomized controlled trials and, and meta-analyses. Um, and um, there is no... We can now say we believe the randomized controlled trial is the way to assess whether treatments are working or not. Fair enough. Um, but we don't have to believe in that. Um, and I mean, this is a completely off the subject, it's off the subject of my book, but if you talk to uh, practitioners of alternative or complementary medicine, um, some of them will say um, randomized control trials have no place in judging the efficacy of our treatment because the RCT, the randomized control trial, is designed for and only works with allopathic medicine. Um, it is not designed for, for example, acupuncture or homeopathy, um, which is depends on a much more sort of idiosyncratic um, uh, understanding of, uh, of the needs of the patient in front of you, um, and therefore cannot be applied. We need other uh, means of assessing uh, the, the effectiveness of, of therapy. Yeah, for example. So I, I would I would challenge you that it is it is not obvious whether a treatment works or not. Um, Always. I mean, sometimes it is. I mean, for example, um, insulin in diabetes, you know, the patient stops dying. So it, 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 sometimes it is pretty obvious, uh, but very often it's not. Um, and, um, and I think that we, st we still have some treatments now that are of dubious effectiveness um, that are carried on for various reasons. That doctors want something to offer. They, uh, they're used to it. It's familiarity uh, and so on. So in your opinion, there's not really this concept of those types of therapies will eventually die out. Um, you know, like let's take, I don't know, using leeches or something to bleed people. I feel like that's an example of um, eventually we saw this evolution of science uh, and we figured out that that doesn't work. But what you're saying is you don't really believe that always happens, that we sort of figure out over time what works and what doesn't and um, things sort of sort each other out. Um, I, I think I'm not arguing against the randomized controlled trial as the, the sort of gold standard for judging efficacy. I think at the moment it's the best that we've got. It has its problems and its flaws and, and it's limited in the questions it can ask and, and answer. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I think that evidence-based medicine is meaning that we are gradually, and it is a gradual process, discarding some therapies which um, have been ineffective uh, and concentrating on ones that uh, that are effective. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I, I would commit myself as a clinician to that endeavour. Um, but um, I mean, in my over my clinical career, I have seen. Um, treatments, for example, such as uh, inserting grommets in glue ear in children um, or prescribing um, uh, anti-congestant, the decongestants for, uh, for, for 
children with, with blue ear, for, for example. Um, and throughout my career, those have been questions and people have been trying to get people to stop doing them, but they are still commonly uh, administered uh, treatments. Um, I, I, as I say, for, for other reasons of, of um, uh, familiarity and, and um, it, it, intuition, it, it, intuitively it makes sense uh, if you um, stick a hole in the eardrum of someone with blue ear to, to drain, it's, it's going to get better. Um, it, it, intuitively, if you give these kids decongestants to unblock their nasal uh, passages, then they're, they're going to, uh, the eustachian tubes are going to drain the middle ear better. Um, it, it, the intuition doesn't translate to clinical practice if you do study it with a uh, with randomised control trial. Um, but uh, I think intuition and, and this imperative to offer something to the patient is, is still powerful in, uh, in, in medicine. Interesting. Dr. Martin Edwards, thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Dr. Martin Edwards is the author of Control and the Therapeutic Trial. You are listening to the Humanities Matter podcast. You can find more podcast episodes on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast.